Welcome to the very first podcast series on The Hub. We're kicking off here with the experts from Science to Sport. In the studio are myself, Dr. Jeroen Swart, Dr. Mike Posthumus, John Wakefield, and Ben Capistanio. And also joining us is Steve Bowman. Not many people will know your background, Steve. You're um, an industry stalwart, but few people know that you were actually the very first South African professional mountain biker. And you went over to the UK and rode for Team Orange, wasn't it? Yeah, that's correct. That's in the early 90s, I think it's 1990. And uh, yeah, I was very lucky. Had a great time, spent five years racing all around the world. Um, it is a very different sport to what it is now. So you've seen mountain biking go right from the early 90s when it had just started as a professional sport right the way through to where we are now, where we're really getting to the, probably in terms of product development, uh, just really evolved products. And also in terms of the training and the science, we're getting to points where we really understand everything, well, hopefully a lot of what goes on with athletes. So um, thank you for joining us. And um, you're gonna keep it a little bit sane with the four scientists in the room. So we're gonna kick off with questions from uh, people that have submitted questions through the, the Hub portal. And um, do you want to take it away, Mike, in terms of the questions? No, 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 I don't know in terms of the questions, but just to further from Steve on asking if it's true, because I've never had the opportunity to ask him, I heard that Steve actually managed a no-hands wheelie from Hart Bay to, to Camps Bay. Is N that true? No, it's partly true. I managed to wheelie from... Topple and Dunder down to Camps Bay. <laughs> with hands or without? That was with hands, yeah. Oh, okay. There's some, so, some no-handers going up. Okay, okay. So I think it's safe to say that Steve does know how to ride a bicycle. Um, so no, I, I think, um, and as, as Jeroen introduced, part of Steve's role um, would be to, to try and translate some of the science if we do get to jargony. Um, Steve, obviously, as Jeroen said, has a has an excellent background, both training being one of the per first professional mountain bikers. So um, it'll be great for, for Steve to play that role as, as translator. Um, so I don't know how this is going to work. Are, are we going to um, pose the questions? Yeah, let's yeah. read them out. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I'll go to one of the first questions we got from, from one of the, or submitted from one of the guys on the hub um, was, and I'll read the question. At some point during intense activity, uh, between brackets a race, the body starts using more sugar than fat as a fuel. Um, short of going for lab tests, how can one estimate that crossover point in terms of a percentage of your max heart rate or any other method you could use? Um, and he's talking about specifically those crossover points. This is something um, Ben um, Ben does a lot of the work within our lab. Um, ben is also currently doing a PhD in which he has done a lot of physiological um, cycle-based tests. So I think it might be a good one to start off with Ben. I've got a few things I would like to add, but let's get Ben going. Yeah, on I, know, I know, Mike, I know you've, you've done a lot of sort of reading on on sort of uh, fat max as it's called and that's the intensity associated with the maximum rate of uh, fat oxidation um, and um, the one thing that the, the sort of research has shown that it's very individual so there's no single percentage of maximum heart rate or 
percentage of FTP that's going to give someone the the sort of um, fat max, as it were. Uh, it seems to be very dependent on a, a number of things. And hold, and, hold on, hold on, yeah. Steve, are you confused already? Because I think we've had about five acronyms and jargons thrown in there already. So let's let's define that a little bit. <laughs> so we're talking about the intensity that your body can utilize fat as a fuel source in terms in relative terms to a greater extent than using carbohydrate or protein which forms a very small amount of fuel as a fuel source and obviously depending on how lean or how fat you are for instance in my case i've got enough fat to last me probably for two years worth of exercise and you can do the mango like faster i can do the mango faster (laughs) so essentially we're looking at and and the reason why the question's asked is people want to increase that value so that they can use fats as an as a fuel source and save carbohydrate and you've only got a limited amount of carbohydrate generally enough for about 90 minutes of exercise unless you actually take some more in via drinks and via food so you were saying it's generally at what intensity of your maximum heart rate? Should we stick to heart rate first? There is no like general one. Okay. Uh, that's in the, the, my the, data, 65% of your max heart rate was the figure that pros used to do. So those are your base miles. Mm. It's yeah. obviously changed. So, yeah. so, so you're and, right. And that would be... Yeah. Um, Sorry, I should have indicated I want you to say something. But the, there are two crossover points. I think the first one um, for, for the listeners is the crossover where uh, between the, the fat and carbohydrate. And the second crossover point that the literature refers to is actually the threshold um, crossover point. No, no, so there are two a, points. That's, no, I think, that, I think crossover traditionally refers to... Uh, where your sort of carbohydrate and uh, oxidation overtakes fat, and then threshold is uh, that's a different. That's I don't think it's referred to as crossover traditionally. No, we're talking about yeah. fat fat crossover points. So yeah. We're talking about maximal fat uh, utilization. And but as we it, define it within our zones, that would be the would we define that as the start of our zone two? Yeah, it'd probably be very close to sort of zone two. So a very low intensity. I think that's the. The hard part of, of doing sort of like these type of efforts is that um, you know you're generally riding at a very low intensity, which can be sort of frustrating at at times. I think so. So Ben, in the lab tests that you've done so far, what sort of heart rate are you seeing the the fat max sort of zone appearing at? Well, we had recently we had one of South Africa's top mountain bikers, top marathon mountain bikers in the lab, um, and he could not have been more average. So uh, in terms of uh, the, the literature, so he was spot on. I think it was 66% of his max heart rate was where his fat, uh, maximal fat oxidation rate occurred, and that agreed with sort of all the literature. But again, uh, in sort of the research, it's it seems that there is quite a wide variety. So some people might be lower than 66% and some people might be higher than 66%. And would age affect that if you get older? Yeah, uh, as you get older, uh, generally our, our sort of muscle mass tends to decrease and our, our ability to oxidize fats as well can, can decrease as well. So Doc, you're probably better to, mm-hmm. to answer that one. So just on that, Ben, then would it make a difference if, or how an athlete would perform being, would an elite athlete have a higher crossover point versus some like an average person in the street does that make a difference on performance yeah so particularly for marathon racing um or any any sort of long distance event so uh ultra ultra marathons uh, your ironman athletes etc if you can tap into using fats as a fuel it's definitely more beneficial because you tend to spare your glycogen stores or carbohydrate stores for use later so and even extremely lean athletes still have a 
a large amount of fat that they can use that they can tap into. So if you can teach your body to use fat as a fuel, um, and there are a variety of methods to do that, uh, it's definitely going to be beneficial, particularly for the longer uh, events where the relative intensity is lower. I'm not saying people are cruising by, by no means, but compared to sort of a maximal effort, they're, they're definitely going a lot easier. Like a mango versus a cross country. Correct. Just to, I mean, to speak to that question, so anybody who trains a lot will have a higher maximal fat oxidation rate. And it's just because training, a lot of the time spent training is going to be at lower intensities. And so you actually develop the ability to use fat as a fuel source because your mitochondrial mass where you burn fat increases in size and so any well-trained athlete will have a higher fat max than a, a less well-trained athlete but then there's also which fuel you decide to use as a fuel source in training will also determine where your fat max sits so you can manipulate that as an athlete by preferentially using fat or, or not using carbohydrate actually as a fuel source when you're doing your training in some of your training sessions and also faster training sessions where you force your body to use fat as a fuel so uh, generally it goes up but in also specifically based on your your training uh, that you're doing mike you're quite well read up on um sort of dietary stuff as well increasing the amount of fat obviously not going nuts but like Excuse the pun, but um, <laughs> but uh, increasing the amount of fat in your diet, like a little bit, will that make you more sort of? Well, can you tap into that fat source and do you become more of a fat burner in inverted commas? I, I I do not know the mechanisms if um, specifically, and I don't know if there is much research out there where the increasing the amount of fat will necessarily stimulate fat oxidation. Hmm. However, decreasing the amount of carbohydrates in your diet will stimulate fat oxidation. Okay. So the most powerful stimulator of fat oxidation, as far as I know, and Jeronimo might be able to correct or, or, or agree with me, would rather be to avoid carbohydrate than to actually try and stimulate fat oxidation mm-hmm. through eating more fat. It's cutting back on the carbs. Okay, but if you're, dropping, agree, yeah. if you're dropping your carbs to keep the energy amount the same, assuming you're not on a caloric or a reduced calorie diet, you'd up the of the amount of protein and fat. Yes. Yeah, you want to increase the amount of protein as well. Um, yes. protein, protein seems to offset. Dropping the carbs puts you at risk for an overtraining syndrome and also suppresses immunity. Mm. And so there is some good literature that shows that by substituting more protein, you can offset that risk a little bit more. So you don't end up as likely to end up in an overtraining syndrome and you also don't end up as much with as much immunosuppression as you would if you just cut the carbs and changed to fat. So protein, and protein in particular for athletes, is, uh, is important in terms of recovery as well. So in an athletic scenario, switching from fats to, uh, to protein is, is, is more beneficial. Yeah, so if you are going to go for a longer, faster ride, um, you could actually snack on, on biltong, uh, potentially have a, 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 a tolerated um, protein drink in your bottle instead of a carbohydrate drink. Um, and when you stop at a coffee shop to have just egg and bacon. Mm-hmm. It's actually um, a strategy used by some professional European cycling teams. Okay. Yeah, the boiled egg, as you said, yeah. John, is, a, is one that's quite handy. You can just chuck it in a, leave it in the, leave it in the shell or more, yeah. and, and or peel it off already. But uh, it's a great. I'm source giving of that to well. some of my athletes on the longer IMTG ride. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, cool. If you do cover it in tinfoil, that smell when you first open. Yeah, I'm not riding with it. I'm just saying that's their problem, not mine. <laughs> John, so well, why don't you go for the next question? Um, well, this is the holy grail of questions. 
What causes cramping and what is the best way to prevent it or relieve it when it happens? Sure. sure. I'm happy to tackle that one. So, no. Doc, you've been around in some research studies at Ironman with, uh, with crampers and non-crampers. So this is a topic that comes up again and again and again. I think we've seen it on the hub probably. Uh, I think there's a dedicated thread just to cramping. But essentially, if you look at the research, um, there's been a lot of uh, pseudo-research that's touted uh, dehydration and electrolyte uh, depletion as a cause of cramping. Um, and uh, if you look at those research studies, they, 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 they do have quite extensive flaws. There were some, there were some studies conducted by the Sports Science Institute here um, both at Ironman and at Comrades, where they looked at a, a whole hundreds of athletes and assessed everything they could possibly assess before the event and then followed them up at the finish line and took blood samples and, and, and uh, assessed which athletes cramped and which didn't. And what they found is that actually there is uh, no identifiable cause in terms of dehydration or electrolyte deficiencies, barring actually only one that was not statistically significant, but which there was a trend, is sodium. So sodium depletion may well be a potential predictor of, of cramping or a cause of cramping. But what they did find is if they looked at the, the, the various factors that were important in those athletes, is it's definitely a genetic component. So if, you, if you've got a family history of cramping or in your own history when you played school sports, you cramped a lot, um, then, uh, then there's a greater chance of cramping during endurance events. The other one was stretching, so less stretching, more cramping, and vice versa. So stretching often, and it's particularly stretching the muscles that are affected, and then training as well. So not enough interval training, and then also not having covered the distance of the event uh, in your training predisposes you to cramping. So it's just general fatigue. It's uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's to be my experience. Even if I cramp, I'm just not fit enough. Yeah, you're just in over your head. Yeah, that's it. cramping yeah. is a fatigue event. Yeah, and, and, and I mean to go into greater detail, I mean, we don't need to get too scientific, but essentially it's an imbalance between. There's a, something called the Golgi tendon organ, which relaxes muscles, and then the muscle spindle fiber, which, which uh, excites them. And you get a progressive increase in muscle spindle fiber activity and a decrease in Golgi tendon uh, activity. And then eventually that gets to a tipping point where suddenly the muscle starts cramping. So a, a good way just to think about this in terms of deficiencies is we know that if you're in hospital and you've got some disease process and you suddenly get very low uh, magnesium concentrations or sodium concentrations or calcium, then you get cramping, but you cramp everywhere. Your eyelids cramp, uh, your fingers cramp, uh, every single muscle in your, in your body cramps. And that's very different to what we call exercise-associated cramping, where only the exercising muscle is cramping. So it's a localized event, and it's related to fatigue. And so those factors before the race could stop you from, from cramping potentially. And then the only thing you can do in a race uh, that, you, that, that has some benefit is reducing the amount of work that you're doing, so slowing down a little bit, but you can actually try and pop it in a slightly harder gear. And what that does is it just puts a little bit more more stretch through the muscle, and that stimulates that Golgi tendon organ. So you want to just ride at a little bit of a lower cadence, create a little bit of a longer contraction, and that stretches that Golgi tendon slightly, changes that balance of of, uh, muscle spindle fiber to Golgi tendon organ, and can sometimes just hold off on a cramp long enough for it to abate and for you to continue. The worst thing you can do is if you if you actually drop down in gears and suddenly start spinning, you'll see you'll cramp up immediately. And if you get off the bike, then you're in trouble because as soon as you get off, you can't get back on because as soon as you try and get on, you put a muscle in a short position and it cramps straight away. So as you try and throw your leg over the bike, your hamstring will cramp, 
your, your hip flexors will cramp and you end up uh, basically limping along for ages. Do you have they found that guys who may be more muscular in build are more prone to cramping or there's no... No association between your size, um, but in terms of the muscles, it's typically the muscles that span two joints, where one side of the muscle is lengthening and the other side is contracting. So for instance, your gastrox, which are part of your calves, the one that uh, you get well developed in cycling, your rec fem, which is a strap-like muscle that goes over your hip and, and crosses your knee, and then your hamstrings, which cross your hip joint and your, and your <coughs> knee joint. Those are the ones that, that tend to cramp, but in terms of the size, muscle bulk, now doesn't really play a, a, a factor in terms of cramping. So, Jeruna, you, you, you're trying to tell the, the, the listeners um, that these hub um, uh, kind of people that contribute to the hub that Rennies aren't going to work. No evidence whatsoever. So we've had all kinds of, uh, I mean, we've had Rennies. You uh, know, Rennies is uh, the one everyone loves throwing, the, yeah. the, uh, throwing Rennies, the Rennie yeah. theory. I don't know what's there, in a Rennie. It is what? That's because they are cramping. And that is actually, <laughs> so... The, uh, Cram block. There's, <laughs> there's no such, there's no, whether all of these various marketed substances don't work, except that there was a study recently that, uh, where they used capsicum. So capsicum is, a, is basically the protein that's found in, in chilies. And that binds to receptors in the mouth and they're pain receptors. And they found that activating those pain receptors had a, had a basically went through some loop in the brain, down the spinal cord and managed to inhibit the cramping mechanism. So that seems to give some evidence to the fact that you could, could potentially ingest something that could inhibit cramping. They did that with, um, <laughs> there was a study that came out as well, but it, it was in team sport athletes. So I'm not sure how relevant it is to endurance athletes, but it was, I think it was football players or, or rugby players, and it was it must be the same thing, but it's pickle juice, and it must be the the vinegar or the uh, that sensation or the acidic sensation in the mouth that sort of helps. Like so, pickle juice was was also shown to have some potential benefit. Yeah. Uh, weak though, but uh, it it might be through the same mechanism, might be through a different mechanism, but it it could potentially be through some receptor in the mouth. But essentially, it's happening at a local level there, and then feeding back through the through the brain, through the spinal cord, probably down to the muscle. So there is possibly some benefit to ingesting some substances. I think the capsicum one you've got to take, I don't know how keen I'd be to be riding hard and then suddenly smashing a chili. I need to have a chili gel. Cadence comes out to a chili gel. There's someone making one, but it doesn't necessarily be not at the same dose because I don't think uh, that that would uh, be too pleasant right in the hurt box and then suddenly stuffing a chili in your mouth. But then can't what, do anything worse. trying to carry like a big pineapple-sized chili in your back mm-hmm. pocket. What, what happens though if one of your athletes come to you and say like, you know, like, um, I'm prone to cramping and I've always got a Rennie's in my, I mean, do you, like, I mean, there's, there's clearly a placebo effect there, but, you know, do you, do you just say, look, it's not going to cause any harm, like, go for it, but, you know, uh, or, or do you say, listen, maybe, <laughs> maybe don't worry about it? We can't discount the placebo effect. I mean, yeah. if, you look at, if you look at various studies, the placebo effect can be up to a few percent, yeah. and, uh, and so if it works for them, then they must carry on no, doing it. They're right. certainly not doing any harm. No. Yeah. As long as there's so, no harm. Yeah. So if they think it's going to benefit them and they feel better doing it, then, uh, then they should just yeah. carry on doing that. I think, I think salt, sorry, salt's yeah, I been a big one uh, yeah. recently. People carrying little salt sachets. Mm. Well, that's yeah, not that what they might I don't know how much the evidence for, so yeah. the sodium. So um, what happens is when you're drinking, if you're drinking water or even if you're drinking a commercial energy drink, the sodium concentration there is way, way, way lower than it is in your blood and in the tissue, in the, in the fluid around your tissues, what we call your interstitial fluid. That fluid is essentially the same concentration as seawater. 
and you're going to just gag and vomit if you drink seawater. So whenever you're drinking, you're essentially diluting your, your whole body sodium concentration. And some of that's corrected in your kidneys. Your kidneys flush out the extra fluid and try and reconcentrate that. But your kidneys shut down during exercise. So we see a lot of athletes where they have low or even below normal levels of sodium after a prolonged endurance event. And that was a weak association in terms of cramping. So pumping up the sodium by taking in salt tablets Coarse salt. May well, be, yeah. may well have a benefit. And, uh, and that's also one of the reasons why commercial energy drinks have sodium. It's to try and stop you from depleting that sodium concentration. But yeah, no, I think on that electrolyte hypothesis, more evidence is needed. Currently, as the literature stands, we do not know, and there's, there's no evidence for any electrolytes to, you know, to be associated. Mm-hmm. I think that's the tagline mm-hmm. on all research studies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> more, more, research more research is required. Yeah. Yeah. But when exactly. So, so, so if anyone tells you that they know what causes your cramps, you can tell them that they are speaking rubbish. Yeah. Because no one knows, even the experts in cramping, no one knows what causes it. So the bottom line would be, you're either a cramper or you're not. In a yeah, way, it seems like that, that way, but, but they are either prone to cramping or you're not. Yeah, as Doc said, there are yeah. methods to reduce it and, and maybe yeah. prevent it. But Steve, you, you obviously mentioned now that you uh, you sort of cramped before and stuff like that. When you were racing um, in, during your career as a, as a pro rider, I mean, was it something you struggled with or no, not really? No. Okay. Generally, it was when I was fatigued. Okay, yeah. and, and disciplines. I mean, did you do back in the day? Was it sort of everything? Or? Pretty well. Back then, it was all cross country. Okay, so, cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but you got to you got to make you got to clarify that when we did cross country, it was three and a half hours for a cross country event. <laughs> so what they call marathon now was cross country back in the day, and there was no such thing as one and a half hour cross country race. Yeah. I've never really understood that cross country tagline. It's like they don't go across the country; they just go around and circle. Yeah, but it's just <laughs> in three and a half hours, it's a stronger race than vibes. It's not the best, fastest, like it's a stronger race than vibes. That's it. I mean, I remember when we, the first couple of nationals, one of the big national events was always at Yonkers Hook, and we used to climb from the, the where you now enter, which is uh, at the gate there, to the highest uh, level, and back down again, and it would be seven laps. So you'd climb up that climb to the top, go across, go straight down the downhill, and do it again. And, and essentially, that would be three and a half hours for the winner. So the back markers would be doing four and a half hours, basically. Sheepers. So okay. That was cross-country in the day. And that's cramped. And, and distances? <laughs> and that what, causes what, what distances were you covering in the race? I don't know, 45, 50 k's, mm-hmm. something okay. like that. Sometimes they do like two hours plus a lap. Depends oh, yeah. on the circuit, okay. you know. It was, it was quite random back then. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Well, it's a nice segue, I think, to our, our next question, which is... Um, from uh, from another hubber that's uh, moving over to the marathon distance next year from half marathons um, and wanting to know sort of how their their training should change in order to to prepare them for this uh, for this jump. Obviously, they don't want to come in unaccustomed and be prone to muscle cramps. So, uh, Mike, you're a fairly accomplished marathon racer yourself or ultra marathon racer. Um, any advice? Yeah, so I'm gonna be. Um um, no, I'm going to put up my opinion and I always try and explain this to someone when they come to me and say they want to race cross country or they want to race marathon and um, to them I, I try and explain that no matter what what exercise session or what training session you're specifically doing what you're doing is you're placing a stress to the body and your muscle will adapt to that stress in exactly the same way so there are studies that have compared different interval sessions, um, a 10 minute to four minute versus a 30 second sprint. And all those studies have actually shown the exact same adaptations. So you, your body adapts in the same way. When you stress it, it's going to adapt 
that adaptation might be an increase in mitochondria um, or it might be a specific um, increase in the type of, of um, the muscle fibers that are um, that are formed so and exactly the same way as a 30 second sprint might stress your body a five hour slow LSD ride will stress your body in exactly the same way and your body's going to adapt to those stresses in exactly the same way so your body isn't specific if you if you train to do 30 second sprints your body isn't only going to get better at sprinting uh, people don't understand that even if you do a 30 second sprint you're going to become a better endurance athlete because those are the adaptations your body makes um, your body is when you do a 30 second sprint section you're going to grow more mitochondria and those mitochondria are going to make you a better endurance athlete um, so quite often marathon athletes might look at a program and say why am I doing these sprints because it's a stress and what you need in, a, in an ideal marathon program is a different of stresses and that's why we periodize a training program so we start off um, we traditionally start off doing strength work then we do base more aerobic work we then we start increasing the intensity what we call immediate intermediate intensity and then high intensity towards the end so we continuously changing the stresses so that your body um, will adapt to the different stresses if you keep on applying the same stress the response will eventually start blunting that's why we keep on changing the stress continually over this um, periodized plan so that so in a nutshell the program is going to be very similar to both a marathon or a cross country well this um, is yeah, half half marathon so yeah, yeah. so it's yeah. very much the same Adam, yeah just an example perfect example of what Mike was saying is if you take Nino Schurter, yes it's at a different level but predominantly does cross country but he still went and rode an eight day tour of Switzerland on the road for Orica as a guest rider and did exceptionally well hmm. you know so from that aspect you would think oh he only does shorter stuff purely because of obvious cross country but that translated over to racing a pro tour road tour um, the other difference that I would do exactly what Mike was saying is from a half marathon to a marathon or from a marathon to an ultra, I would add in one or two slightly longer rides, purely from a mental aspect, to sit on your bike a little bit longer. Um, your training and your shorter intensity work and structured stuff is will all be the same. But what I find with athletes is when they need to race maybe an hour and a half longer, it's not from a physical thing, it's from a mental aspect. And that's where they battle, personally. I'm going to throw a little proviso in there because I, I think I've come full circle on this. I, mean, I think I wrote about 10 years ago, I wrote an article called um, Are South Africans Wasting Their Time? And it was about the fact that the majority of South Africans spend, whether it's canoeing, running, cycling, spend all of their time doing these long, slow distance they love uh, training, which I think is the best way to train for yeah. comrades, the epic, etc. And really, I was just basically covering exactly what Mike's talking about now. And that when you do a 30 second sprint, the physiological adaptation actually allows you to improve at a marathon level because the adaptation actually does the exact same thing. But there are some provisors. So the one thing is with, when it comes to marathon racing, there you're not in, in cross, or let me flip the coin on that one, cross country racing, generally you're not limited by your fuel substrate. So in, this, in the average cross country race these days, which lasts 60 to 90 minutes, you're not going to run out of fuel in the form of carbohydrate and the majority of your fuel is going to come in from, from carbohydrate. That's different when it comes to marathon racing. If you're going to do an ultra marathon where you're going to be finishing for four, four and a half hours, 
you're trying to force the body to rely, and you spoke about this in the first question, on fat as a great fuel source, but you also want to use those carbohydrates as effectively as possible. And if you're doing the really high-intensity efforts and you've trained your body to be good at glycolysis, which is basically our afterburner version in our physiology, which gives you lots of ability to do high intensities, but isn't very efficient, you're going to run out of fuel. So you've got to do the specific training to, to adapt yourself to using fat as a fuel source and using carbs more oxidatively, in other words, burning them in the mitochondria to generate more energy than you would glycolytically. But the other principles are pretty similar. Um, the only other one I would throw in is also that just the long steady state climbing is something that you need to adapt to, whether it's a psychological thing, I don't know if you could possibly measure it physiologically, but getting used to sitting for a prolonged period of time and climbing for 20, 30, 40 minutes mm. at a steady state yeah. does take a, a certain amount of training. If you've been doing 30 second sprints, you, you do a 40 minute climb, you're going to feel it and uh, you might not be nearly as good as if you'd actually specifically trained that. So specificity does apply. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to just add to what Mike said earlier is about, you know, like each training session being a stress that you sort of apply to the body. Um, I saw an editorial recently in one of the one of the scientific journals that showed that although um, high intensity interval training and sort of your more moderate intensity, your your LSD rides and stuff like that, provide or result in similar adaptations in terms of uh, physiology, there might be subtle differences uh, in in the two. And and so so just to clarify, you don't just go and do high intensity, and you don't just go and do um, long slow distance. Uh, the the LSD work has been shown, or they think now might uh, improve sort of uh, uh, the increase in capillary density, uh, which you don't get from high intensity. And then high intensity might not only increase the number of mitochondria, but also how they function. So uh, so th so there are slight subtle differences. So it's just basically, as Mike said, like following a periodized plan where you sort of increasing or you adding applying different stresses to the body all, all the time to keep the body basically adapting. Well, what you're talking about there is also polarized training. So uh, you're yeah. talking about low intensity training and high intensity training. And the one I think that everybody thinks is, is well, that the lay people tend to punt as a as a good way to train is doing the intermediate intensity, what uh, the some people call yeah, the sweet spot, which, we, which uh, we like to talk about sometimes on social media, but there is no such thing as a sweet spot. And in actual fact, uh, I think we all agree that that's really the place to avoid. So low the intensity spot. is good, the sour mm. spot. The sour mm. spot. We renamed the sweet spot the, the sour, sour spot. spot. Thanks for that one, John. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a, a question. I mean, um, South Africa is driven by marathon racing, which is, you know, long rides. Um, and in the modern age, we don't all have time to go do long, steady rides and all the rest of it. So if time is limited and you want to do marathon racing, in my head, what I would be doing is when I ride, I'm going to ride myself into the ground. If I've got an hour, I'm going to bury myself. Um, and if I can do that three or four times a week because of time constraints, is that the best way to do it? I mean, if, if you are limited this time, or what is the best way to go? Yeah, well, yes and no. Yeah. Yeah. Better, yeah. I mean, you see, I see I, you're shaking your head. Yeah, I, tell us. And the, the reason it's four days a week. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that. Yeah. So, like, we, we've, just, we've just had a client who's come to us from, uh, from a different coach who was preparing for... I think this year's epic, and along the way he did the the typical sort of run in. So he did Wines to Wales the week or the year before, uh, Tanqua, and uh, and then was going on to epic. And um, 
he'd he'd been you know like generally you can speak to people about the training but if they've got their files if they've logged them on Strava or Garmin Connect it's always handy to go and have a look at and he was very pressed for time and so I had a look at his files and it was Monday intervals and then Tuesday intervals <laughs> Wednesday <laughs> intervals and I, I said wow you you did a lot of intervals and he was yeah yeah it was quite often so um, and eventually, like he, I think, uh, got through the prologue at the Epic and day one, uh, couldn't get past water point one, I think, and, and he was totally fried. And we actually did almost the complete opposite. We made him ride very low intensity, even though he didn't only had an hour. Try to keep like one day easy and, and put in maybe two quality or high intensity sessions in the week. And that was it. The rest was very, very low intensity. And his, his distribution changed from like being all the way in zone four and zone five to predominantly zone one and two. Um, and he got through Wines to Wales um, now um, fairly comfortably. I mean, he wasn't, I mean, but like four and a half hours each day, which is solid. And uh, yeah, completely, completely different. So I think that when you, when you press the time, there is that sort of temptation to go like, but you've got to have smash, smash, recovery smash, with smash, it. but like it just yeah. doesn't work. So uh, yeah, you know, if you, four days a week, if that's your time, you got to recover. Yeah, and well, one of the hardest things to do is to to go easy when you feel good. So let's say you've had a really good session like two days ago, and your legs have like responded, and you you're feeling really good. You want to get out there and just like hammer. And sometimes you know it, it takes a lot of restraint and uh, sort of dedication to pull back on those stuff. So. Um, just to go on from that, the general stuff that um, I have found when you take on a new client that had done something that Ben was explaining now is that when you kind of cut their hours down by a quarter or even mm -hmm. a half and you spread the intensity out, they kind of get scared and nervous and they don't trust you because they say, oh, but I'm not doing anything. But when you eventually get a pattern of it is that the quality sessions they're doing are quality and they're hitting numbers every single time or maybe just above the numbers. But the mentality that I found is that everyone thinks longer and harder is the way to go. And that's... It yeah, is a South it, it, thing. Yeah, it's a yeah. South African thing, and it's hard to try to say to him, like, ease off a bit, like, lower it down, let's go harder than what you were. But, you know, if you ride in that sweet spot for four hours, you're going to be tired. Like, but you don't sour know. Sour spot. The sour spot. spot. Yeah, the sour spot. So, you know, you're going to be tired. In, like, it's, but I'd rather go to a set of, like, eight by twos than go ride that most of the time, like people do day in and day out. Yes, so no, no. also from my side to answer Steve, I would say try and look at, I would probably when I start with an athlete, um, get them doing approximately two high intensity sessions a week yeah. and have the rest really easy, what we call zone two. Um, and then those two high intensity sessions, I also would try and structure it and they might say that they can just go and ride as hard as they can, but if you ride as hard as you can for an hour, by definition, that hour is going to be at most your threshold. The You're not going to push yeah, exactly. It's going to be in that sound spot. You want to push it harder. So, and that's why that's where interval training, because interval okay. training will have shorter periods. John mentioned the eight by two, a perfect example. You'd go as hard as you can for two minutes, which is way above your threshold. You'd rest and do that eight times. Um, in which case, during that session, you'll spend 16 minutes way above your threshold, which is much more beneficial than sitting for 60 to 90 minutes just in that uncomfortable... Sweat, snot out your nose zone. That zone, that zone John described very well. So I would say, look at, uh, no, Steve, look at doing 
two, you know, two sessions a week and look at doing specific intervals so that you can push beyond your threshold. That's where you'll make your improvements. And spread spread those two sessions up. Yeah. So don't do don't do them okay. Tuesday and Wednesday. <laughs> like, <laughs> one like Wednesday, <laughs> well, maybe like Saturday, Saturday and stuff like one that. Would, one would think that's yeah. self-evident, but yeah, yeah, you'd be surprised if somebody Anyway. All right. Well, uh, one of the interesting questions is uh, that we've got here is, we got other cross coming up in January, actually, the first marathon, and it's going to probably be stinking hot. And so the question is, is there a way to get better at riding at high temperatures, uh, in high temperatures? So um, what we're talking about there is heat acclimation. So I'm, I'm happy to, to spout forth on that if you guys are running. Go, go for it. Uh, <laughs> but essentially what, what's happening there is when, you, when you're exercising, uh, the human body is... is depending on your efficiency levels, anywhere between 20% and 28% efficient. So the majority of the energy that you expend, just like a motor vehicle, is going into producing heat. So not that efficient, but efficient enough uh, to, to get around. And so you've got to get rid of that heat. And uh, when temperatures are high, getting rid of that heat becomes harder because the way that we get rid of heat is we, we, we radiate that heat into the environment. And if it's a cool environment, that's easy because a lot of heat into a cool environment dissipates quickly and we sweat so that's one of the unique human characteristics and allows us to actually exercise in the heat is, is the fact that we sweat but you've got to actually be able to do that and um, one of the ways that we we liberate the heat is we distribute blood to our skin so the skin is a, the biggest organ in the body and so we send the blood out there but the problem is when you're under trained particularly when you're not heat acclimatized is that you don't have enough blood to send to the skin and to the muscle and to the brain at the same time. And so the biggest adaptation in the heat is that you actually increase your blood volume. So when you exercise in a really hot environment, straight after that your liver produces a lot of proteins and those proteins then basically uh, attract water into your blood and then you increase your blood volume. And you can do that by training in the heat. So you can do that by actually going out and doing a good couple of sessions and it takes about two weeks. But what if you live in an environment like uh, Europe and you come over to South Africa for the EPIC or, uh, or another similar type of circumstance? And some of the, the, the recent research has shown that a good way to do that, and it actually is effective, is uh, jump into a scalding hot bath as often as you can uh, in the lead up to those hot events. And when we're talking about a scalding hot bath, we're talking about a temperature that you can just tolerate. In other words, it's got to feel extremely hot when you get in and it's got to be almost intolerably hot and try and stay in there for about 20 to 30 minutes sure. or go into a sauna or a steam room and also make it hot enough that you mm -hmm. can only just tolerate it and try and do that for about half an hour. And that has a pretty good effect in terms of um, heat acclimation and will improve your performance in uh, So in how long leading up to an event or Generally like you that. need at least two weeks. So you want Every to try and heat acclimate for more than two weeks but two weeks is sort of a minimum period to actually have a reasonable acclimation. It obviously depends on how hot and how humid. So humidity is a big one. If it's humid, it's going to be worse than if it's dry heat. So we recently had the world champs in Abu Dhabi and, and there it was a dry heat. So although it felt really hot, and in fact the temperatures for the riders were incredibly high, they were over 40 degrees, they are much better tolerated than if, for instance, if you go to Brazil and it's 35 degrees, but the humidity is 60 or 70% that's harder to, to acclimatize to because the sweat can't evaporate. So you don't cool down nearly as well as if you do in, in uh, exercise and dry heat. 
And on, on, on that's on the women's podium there, weren't there two Scandinavians? And a Dutch. <laughs> and a Dutch. And there, a Dutch. You yeah. there you go. Well, so. you, know, you know those uh, saunas are very popular yeah. in Scandinavia, yeah. so um, I'm sure they've got a few... Just moved to indoor training on there. And the I, know, I know Mike's going to jump in now, but if I can quickly, like, um, during, like when you're doing the acclimation rides, um, obviously, as we've spoken about previously, when you really want to focus on quality, you'd probably want to avoid doing your high intensity sessions as acclimation and then maybe do your low intensity rides to uh, to help with the sort of getting used to the heat. It depends where you are in your acclimation. Early yeah. on, you if you've gone to a hot environment, so you've yeah. arrived now in Abu Dhabi or Brazil or wherever it happens to be and it is already hot, you want to start off with the low intensity rides uh, in the heat and then try and do the, in, the intensity on maybe an indoor trainer in an air conditioned environment and then as you adapt, you start, start to move outside. into the out, outdoor environment and to progressively do higher intensities. So Mike's, Mike's been acclimatizing for about four, four, four years. Occasionally, <laughs> 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 he comes outside. <laughs> Sorry, Mike, I know you wanted to ask something, but Doc, would that work in the opposite effect that if you had to do that and then go race at a lower temperature, you would have that extra blood volume, extra oxygen, etc. Would it be like altitude training in a way? Yes, to some extent. Benefit? So extra blood volume is always more beneficial in terms of um, the, the efficiency of your cardiovascular system. So there are definitely performance benefits to having a greater blood volume. And there's one of the mechanisms that you adapt, even in, if you're not heat acclimatizing, your blood volume, is your plasma volume is one of the key things that expands as you get fitter. So you actually increase your, your blood volume by up to 50% the plasma volume uh, when you go from completely untrained to being an elite level athlete um, and so definitely so the heat acclimation can actually enhance your performance at in cool environments as yeah. well yeah, and, and, exact mechanism. And, and what is that period you need to literally get out of the bath get on a plane go race in terms of or, the yeah or is there like a two-week window say with altitude training that you have that you maintain the benefit. The effect will last for at least a few weeks. Okay. So, so the longer you've acclimated for, the longer it'll last. But it'll generally dissipate over the the the, 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 the weeks that uh, yeah that, that follow after that acclimatizing period. In, in addition the, to the the heat acclimation, there is a cross. I don't know what the sort of correct term is, but like a cross acclimation thing. So apparently, heat training may help with going to altitude as well. Yes, um, but not 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 as effective as obviously training at the same altitude. But it does reduce some of the 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 loss in performance when going to altitude, which is handy for sea level athletes. Which is a which you know it's important to to understand why you actually perform poorly at altitude, and that's because of what we call a diuresis. You mm. essentially pee out your your blood volume, and your, so your plasma volume contracts. So the plasma volume is if you, if you look at blood, you've got part of its cells, and most of that's red cells, and the rest is fluid. And that fluid portion, which is called your plasma, decreases in the first 72 hours at altitude. And depending on how high you go, that'll depend on how much it contracts. So if you go start off with a bigger plasma volume, the effect of the altitude will be less. So, um, so that's doing exactly the opposite to what the heat acclimation is doing. Do you, um, just on the altitude thing, and I guess it's related to heat, but um, do you end up drinking significant more at altitude? Mm. I mean, yes. I was just at the city now, and yeah. I was drinking four, we, we rode for seven hours, I, f- I reckon I flattened four liters of water. Now. Yeah, so that's a different effect. So that's the effect of the altitude. So you actually, your, your evaporative fluid loss from your respiratory tract is faster. So when you breathe in and out, 
you actually lose water that's lining all of your respiratory uh, 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 anatomy, so right down into the alveoli in your lungs. And, and essentially at altitude, more of that evaporative loss is happening. So you dehydrate through the act of breathing uh, more rapidly, and that obviously compounds the effect of the plasma volume contraction which you're losing through your urine. So you actually do end up having to drink more to sustain your, uh, your hydration levels. Yeah, and I just wanted to add to you, Jaren um, recently did physiological testing on Chris Froome, um, and I remember from that study he showed some really interesting um, findings, um, there was some really interesting data from him um, doing some testing in the heat. Um, I can't remember the specifics. Well, so we were talking about economy, so yeah. um, and, and, or efficiency, and, and his efficiency did exactly the opposite to what we would normally expect. So if you look at, in, in, on average, uh, when you go and exercise in the heat, you become less efficient. So you actually produce less power for the, the a given amount of oxygen that you consume. And generally you drop somewhere about 1% in efficiency. And he did exactly the opposite. When we put him in a hot, humid environment, his efficiency actually went up by approximately half a percent. So he actually became more efficient in a hot environment than in a cool environment. Which, uh, you know, anecdotally he spoke about the fact that he performs well in, in the tour when it's hot. And, uh, and certainly the lab tests seem to validate that. Why that actually happens, we don't understand. So we, we still need to figure out the mechanism as to why he becomes more efficient. Yeah, I was going to ask whether, whether that would be something genetic. And uh, if we see that in, in some of the athletes we coach, is it something genetic or is it because Chris Froome did a lot of uh, heat climatization? I think it's, uh, it, it, it's also another factor, is also just the shape of his body. So he's got a, what we call a very ectomorphic body, really long arms and legs. He's very lean, or he looks very lean, but it's, it's not just leanness, it's the shape of his body. So he's See, tall, he's tall <laughs> with long arms and legs. And what that does is that that shape of body gives you a large body surface area. So you cool down faster. So he may be key staying cooler, and, and his core temperature, I mean, we obviously needed, would have had to do comparisons at the same power output with somebody with a different body shape, which is very difficult. But essentially, uh, staying cooler means that he may get to his optimal temperature because we actually function better when we're a little bit warm. That's why we do warm up. So all of the enzymes in the body work better at a particular temperature. And he may be getting to that temperature in the hot environment better than he does in the cold. And that way he may be becoming more efficient. So exercising in the heat, and he also anecdotally says that he doesn't perform well in the cold. Yeah. So, uh, so that might just be one of the reasons why, but it, it could also be his training, it could be genetics, uh, we didn't really go into depth into terms of trying to find out why, but uh, but it is an unusual phenomenon. I mean, I've noticed in you know, my racing days when I'd race with guys and I pr sweat profusely when I exercise, so the heat doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me at all. I, don't, I just know I need to drink. And you get guys who literally don't sweat and they just go red and yeah. you can see they pop. Mm. The, so I think it's a genetic thing built in there, there must be. Definitely, there's definitely yeah. some genetic component to it. So, yeah. But I'm very glad what you said about Chris Froome because the study's hope for me because we, I'm essentially built exactly the same as there, Chris Froome. There are times when, when, when I'm riding behind you and I think it's him. Yeah, if you had I, Sky Kit on, I'd be I, like, yeah. this is, oh no, how's it, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> 
For those of you who don't know Mike, he um, he's currently just on 90 kilos and he's come Ooh, from... Don't say that. No, he's, he's a shaved gorilla. Okay, let's go on to the next question. Getting a bit personal. Too much information. So um, the next question we have um, um, from so someone that submitted this. Um, I see many riders on the cross-country World Cup circuit racing with dropper posts. Would this be something beneficial um, within South African marathon races? Well, that's the first question that I think, Steve, you can probably tell us a bit more about that. You, the, the legend in terms of skills, I've written yeah, downhill with I, you. I think, um, I think for, the, for the South African market, which is very marathon driven, and it's not that technical, I'm not convinced that it's, it's the right way to go for a lot of guys. However, um, I think there's a real skill problem in South African mountain biking for not just the pros, but a lot of average guys. Um, they don't spend enough time learning how to ride a bike properly. They spend a lot of time getting fit. And um, in races like the Epic now, which have definitely become more technical, I think a dropper post is a winner. And the thing with the dropper is, um, the downside is obviously the weight, and South Africans are probably the most weight-conscious people in the world. <laughs> um, but the, the dropper doesn't need to be dropped down a lot. It, we're talking, if you look at Absalon, it literally drops 30 mil. And that's all it needs. It's, it's, a, it's a tiny amount. It just gets that saddle out the way and it gives you a huge amount of security. So I think there's a lot of people that should be using them um, that are maybe slightly nervous. Um, and if they, they swapped over and tried one, I, th- I think they'd see a real benefit. Definitely. I, I mean, I, I, I can attest to that. I, I've just finished riding wines to Wales and um, I'm not nearly as fit as I should be or, or was in the past. And one of the biggest things I noticed there is having had the skills from being an elite rider in the past, we were riding and losing ground on the climbs to groups of riders. And within literally 150 meters of hitting the single track, we were right on everybody's tail. And obviously we couldn't get past. So the riders are really fit, but they don't have those skills, exactly what you say. And the the downhills are free time, you know, that's where you could be recovering. And what I see in the guys is, is they're not recovering, they're not using that opportunity to recover, they're on the, living on the ragged edge because they don't have those skills. So there's a few things um, that need to change. One is that guys need to learn how to ride properly. Um, unfortunately, South Africa is incredibly hard to teach because they think they know everything <laughs> generally. Um, but I think that the drop of post for, for a lot of South cyclists... You are South Africans, Steve. <laughs> 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 Just making sure. <laughs> 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 um, but I think the drop of post really is, is, a, is a great benefit for a lot of guys. Yeah. Yeah. But, and and you, you mentioned the weight, obviously, the penalty, like... But I mean, I know Fox have just brought out a, a post now. But I mean, how much sort of extra weight are you adding? In the world of cycling, it's it's, it's a fair amount. It's okay. four hundred and fifteen grams, which is it's half a kilo. Yeah. No, is that added four hundred and fifty? Well, you got to take the, your old post off. Yeah, depending but a normal what you got post on two hundred and fifty uh, grams. Yeah, so it's so two fifty. I mean, uh, yeah, I think just, four, four. Say you're adding three hundred grams overall weight. It's not a lot, no, um, no. but you know, the guys out there, every gram counts. Um, I, I think they're insane, but that's just... Just yeah. have a bigger poo in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. 100 grams off. Very, very scientifically put. <laughs> 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 yeah. But I, I think the bottom line here is that in marathon racing, there's, you know, there's a lot of distance covered um, and a lot of effort put in, and there are times when guys could really benefit from just being able to ride down things properly, yeah. and that would make a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Without putting my calculator out, 300 grams, if it's as much as that, if you get a light 200 gram seat post, is going to over over climb 
make you five seconds slower, you're going to save more than five seconds when you go downhill yeah, um, to those riders that are skilled that need it. I do believe that among the pro guys, um, not many of them will really benefit. I don't think our marathon racing locally is technical enough, um, but there are those um, further down that do struggle technically and that do lose a lot of time, and they will make more than the five seconds they might lose. Yeah, going up for sure. There's this swing to it. I mean, the Fox that we bring in um, have brought out a new post and the sales have been incredible and we're just one of a few brands out there so there, there's definitely a trend where people are paying attention and I think it's really come from the cross country guys yeah. I think it's been a, a real like wow mm. the pros are using it um, I mean their courses are super technical now so I think that's good I think there's a bit of mind change which is and from a maintenance aspect on no, the saddles no. they're good to go yeah they're very little yeah they're really reliable and they're both remote and manual or remote? Both. But generally remote is where what people want. Yeah. The convenience. Yeah. Great. I think uh, we've gone through quite a few questions. I think uh, we can probably go all night at this rate, but we've got about another five or six questions that we'll probably leave for a second podcast on another occasion. And uh, I think it's a great start to the, the first of these series of podcasts that we'll be putting on the hub. And uh, Steve, thanks for coming to yeah, join us. Thank you. And uh, guys, thank you very much for... Uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks, Steve. Thanks for coming through.